everybody, you're listening to the New Discourses podcast. This is James Lindsay, your host and the founder of New Discourses, and we're going to talk about something scary. I want to talk to you about Lysenkoism. Lysenkoism is a word you may or may not have heard. Lysenko was a Russian, um, I hesitate to call him scientist, pseudoscientist in the Soviet regime. And he had some bad ideas. This isn't really, we're not going to talk all that much about Lysenko. I want to talk to you about the idea of medical Lysenkoism in our own society. So I'm just going to briefly introduce Lysenko. But he was kind of the chief biologist or um, horticulturalist, not really horticulturalist. He was he was the agriculturalist for the Soviet Union um, under, <laughs> under Stalin. And which was famous for its its famines, its loss of productivity uh, in the farms, and so on. And he had some very different ideas about biology. Um, in, in very brief, he rejected Darwin's theories. Uh, he rejected almost all of Western genetics. And he had his own ideas that he based on other thinkers, um, like Lamarck, and uh, in place of... Uh, Gregor Mendel's theories of um, genetics, which he thought were reactionary and idealist, uh, he mixed those. He mi- he mixed uh, Lamarckian ideas, which is that environmental circumstances influence your your situation, uh, your genetic situation more. So you know the the example maybe would be given that 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 Lamarck would have kind of followed the idea that the giraffes are reaching up constantly to pick leaves off of trees, for example, and that that constant activity stretches their neck longer and longer and longer. And as a result of stretching their necks longer and longer and longer, they pass that trade on to their offspring, uh, who then repeat the pattern. And this is not how genetics works. Um, he also combined those ideas with uh, a, a Russian, uh, Ivan uh, Maturin, who... Um, profoundly influenced uh, his thought, Lysenko's thought, and Lysenko ended up in charge of the um, in charge of the agricultural program. The <laughs> horrific, it's like I'm stumbling around on the words here because it's just like so bad. It's almost hard to, to speak about the horrific failures of agriculture that were present first in um, Soviet, the Soviet circumstance under Stalin, and then for whatever set of reasons, despite these horrific failures, Mao took them up uh, and led to a gigantic famine. So anywhere untold tens of millions of people starved to death as a result of this guy's bad ideas. Not just his bad ideas, though. His bad ideas being able to be forced into play. Um, so rejecting um, Mendel and rejecting Darwin and rejecting you know, the established ideas that were coming out about how genetics works and how crops grow and how biological systems function um, led to disastrous results once that was put into force because it agreed with a particular ideology. Um, Lysenko, for example, didn't even believe that that genes and DNA existed. Um, He only ever mentioned them to say that they don't exist. some really bad ideas. And um, as a result of some of his ideas, he did things like forcing farmers to plant seeds very close together, 
Why? Because he believed that, that being communist, he believed that there would be inherent cooperation. Um, in fact, he, has, he had this thing he called the law of the life of species, which stated that plants from the same class <laughs> uh, never would compete with one another. So the proletariat, of course, are all of the same class, and so they don't compete with one another. It's competitions an evil capitalist idea that imperialists and capitalists and in the bourgeoisie use. And so he he planted plants close together. He believed that poor crops would grow into better crops if you put them in the conditions where they can cooperate with one another. And what you had was massive, massive amounts of crop failure. You had masses, massive amounts of people starving to death. And the reason that his policies were put into play was because they agreed with communist ideology and they disagreed and challenged so-called capitalist ideology, uh, laws of competition, uh, as uh, as alternatives. And so it was forced upon people who wanted to reject so-called Western and bourgeois science, who wanted to characterize those things as right-wing or imperialist or tools of the of the bourgeoisie or the oppressors or of the right-wing. Um, and because his ideas don't work, you know, this is one of these things. This is what, what you start to find happening in situations like the Soviet Union. And like, I think we are at risk of finding ourselves against with the woke, but not so much, not as much with biology uh, through agriculture as biology through medicine. I think we're going to see medical tyranny, not because we're a very healthcare oriented society, rather than agricultural tyranny, because we're not a agricultural peasant society. Um, but when, when these ideas go into play, they fail. They don't work. They're incorrect theories. They're pseudoscience. They're crackpot. They're wrong. And when you bounce wrong theory, regardless of how ideologically fitting it is, if you bounce wrong theory off of reality, what comes out is disaster. Okay. And then there's only two options at that point. You either admit your mistake and abandon ship, or you double down and try to silence any evidence or suppress any evidence or suppress any criticism that reveals your failure. And humans have a lot of reasons why we take that bad road instead of the good road. Pride, you could say. Arrogance, you could say. There are, there are softer reasons. Ideology is a very hard reason. The ideology can't possibly be wrong. So it must be the, you know, corrupt evil agents who are, are undermining it somehow and they have to be rooted out and destroyed. That's a horrible way. A less horrible fact about human psychology, though, is that when we understand ourselves or glimpse ourselves is a better way to put it, when we glimpse ourselves in a situation where we are truly complicit in moral evil, it, it becomes almost impossible to recognize that in our, on ourselves and admit it. And it's much easier to double down or into previous beliefs or to adhere to an ideology that apologizes for this and allows us to continue believing wrongly, dangerously wrongly, rather than change our views, because changing our views requires us to admit and feel the guilt of having been involved in something horrible. And I've had some some space where I've talked in the past on this podcast and my other uh, James Lindsay only subs for that I do for subscribers only. I've had some space where I've talked about these things in the past 
in terms of how difficult it can be to get somebody to change their mind when they're involved in something bad. So if you have, for example, a woke person today and you uncover the fact that their wokeness is causing harm, a lot of them will double down and retreat back into the ideology rather than coming out of the ideology because it requires them to admit that they had actually taken up, in this case, something that's racist and that's bigoted in many regards. It's causing undeniable harm. And their whole point in being woke was probably to avoid causing that harm or to minimize that harm. The same thing would be true in reverse, though. Is The woke do have something of a point that they then absolutely ruin by getting it all wrong, which is that if you were actually complicit in white supremacy, for example, you would probably feel really bad about that. They leverage this against people who are not complicit in white supremacy. They do so very effectively. And they, the psychological mechanism is the same. That's why this is horrible. What they do, they leverage being, if you found out that you were actually complicit, if you glimpsed yourself as complicit in white supremacy, you would feel horrible and you would want to do something to to not have that. So then what is peop, what does somebody like Ibram Kendi say? That denial is the heartbeat of racism. So they're able to leverage the idea that people would tend to double down. They're able to, to, to identify the psychological um, reaction and then leverage it to indoctrinate people, to create vulnerability, to induce them into occult indoctrination, which is exactly what they do. Um, well, if you are a Lysenkoist, or if you were Trofim Lysenko himself in the Soviet Union, whether Trofim Lysenko was of this sort, or whether he was genuinely just ideological, or whether he was actually evil, or whatever the, whatever the circumstances were, he absolutely was not going to release his ideas, right? He absolutely was not going to release his biological ideas, and in fact, it went so far as to um, end up uh, suppressing by trying to eliminate all dissent against his ideas because he couldn't silence Western critics, for example. He couldn't silence everybody in the world. Instead, they just suppressed it and kept any dissent within the, the Soviet Union from challenging his ideas. And, and scientists or farmers even who tried to go against him ended up arrested by the secret police, carted off to Siberia, stuck in the gulag somewhere, shot. Um, hundreds of thousands of these people at Lysenko's orders ended up dumped into prisons and psychiatric hospitals. It was a very common thing in the Soviet Union, especially early on, to, to say that all dissidents must be crazy or insane. Um, I relate. <laughs> I get called these things all the time. Lots of people were, were sentenced to death. Lots of people were considered enemies of the states. Lots of people were starved. Um, this is not a good situation. Lysenkoism, in other words, does not denote something good. So um, we're talking again that his ideas were, were implemented um, both within the Soviet Union, leading to untold tens of millions of people starving to death, besides the people who are actually brutally killed or imprisoned or tortured or whatever for disagreeing with him, which is, you know, we see hundreds of thousands, of, hundreds of thousands of those, not tens or hundreds, um, people being rounded up and carted off for disagreeing. But then we have millions starving to death because of the failure of these ideas. And then, if that's not bad enough, we see it taken up again. The Great Chinese Famine from 1959 to 1962 was when Mao took these same ideas up and were like, no, that's the communist agriculture. That's the way to go. 
that's the correct one. And um, again, mass starvation, tens of millions of people starving to death. And anybody who disagreed, imprisoned, silenced, killed. Uh, absolute nightmare. Lysenkoism is a word that we really should have as close to the front of our minds in terms of human evil as Nazism. It really should be. We could talk about this in terms of you know communism. We could talk about Leninism and Stalinism. Those things should all be near the front of our mind in great evils as well. Fascism, Nazism, but Lysenkoism in particular, which is the absolute ideological perversion of a science upon which people depend. In particular, we could narrow it down to a biological science or something based on biological science upon which people depend. Agriculture for Lysenko. I say that the woke are taking this in the direction of medicine for us. And, you know, I've mentioned this a lot uh, ever since COVID-19 began and the political activity around it began. I was already aware of this concept and had intended to write about it, but I had to write about it immediately on new discourses on my uh, encyclopedia, my social justice encyclopedia. I wrote about this idea, not medical Lysenkoism, which is what we weren't, what we're going to address today, but rather health equity. So health equity is kind of the name under which medical Lysenkoism is going to occur, which is where we're going to pervert our medical system. We're going to use other objectives than sound medical science and the forwarding of proper, um, proper med medical professionals, clinicians, researchers, and scientists. We're going to put other things in place uh, under a under a branding of health equity to achieve equitable, in other words, equal outcomes, uh, to achieve equity under an umbrella of health. And when I wrote this, when COVID first started, so this would have been maybe in March of 2020, you know, very early on, I remember writing, because I tried to be very charitable to the ideas I'm representing on there, I tried to be very charitable and say, well, a lot of times health equity is going to talk about using the idea of disparate health outcomes to remake systems. In other words, to leverage the ability to gain power over a hospital, or over a food distribution system, or the entire structure of society, like cities now have to be reorganized so that food can be equity, healthy food can be equitably, equitably distributed. It gets complicated because health equity also includes ideas like that you can't tell people of particular cultures or who are overweight or obese especially that they can't eat certain foods because that somehow violates their culture. Um, but in that, that article or that entry in my encyclopedia, I explicitly said it could, but probably will not. This was one year ago. Could, but probably will not include prioritization of care. Now, at that point, I'd actually heard that in nursing, there was a little bit of that threatening on the horizon, that social justice was going to be elevated to a um, pillar of nursing, uh, if you call nursing a science, and the science of nursing, um, or the practice of nursing, that social justice was going to be elevated to one of the pillars of the discipline. And that's concerning, and that it could, in fact, include prioritization of care. But I said that that was kind of a fringe thing. It's not the main objective. The main objective is to claim power in, say, hospitals and medical research facilities, maybe medical journals, and then to go on to try to reorder society at the level of things like food distribution and expectations. But prioritizing access to care is a very direct way to start creating equal outcomes in health for health equity. So it's very concerning. Well, color me wrong. 
unfortunately. You know, I was still a bit soft and naive, although I was trying to be very charitable, trying to be as charitable as possible to um, the ideology when I represent it on the encyclopedia, and I still do. I find it harder to be charitable to it now and to steal Manet's arguments now. It's actually harder for me to write the entries because I see how much more bad it is, but it it's hard to it's hard to try to put it in the positive framing that they give and explain it that way. But it turns out that prioritizing care is actually showing up. So I want to read through. I have not actually read this all in detail, so it's going to be me reacting as I read through it for the first time. I'm going to read two articles to you to kind of illustrate to you this growing problem of medical lysenkoism. Now, medical lysenkoism might take many forms. Prioritizing care is one, obviously, and that's what this article, the first article I'm going to read is about. But another form is actually uh, all of this policy around, you know, vaccine equity, like we're, we're putting equity, racial equity, for example, into our vaccine distribution. I don't, forcing people, everybody to get the vaccine and vaccine passports, this all falls under medical lysenkoism. If those vaccines are actually much more dangerous than we realize, as some evidence suggests, Forcing everybody to, I, I personally, by the way, know more people who have had severe reactions to the vaccine than I know people who had severe cases of COVID. Now, I'm not, I'm one person, so that doesn't mean anything particular, but it, it's concerning. Uh, if these vaccines are much more dangerous than than suggested, we are experiencing metal, medical lysenkoism by forcing everybody to have it and then, say, coercing people by tying it to their freedom if vaccine passports, for example, go through. Medical lysenkoism could lead to massive amounts of problems. We could see medical lysenkoism in the huge push right now from the trans activists, for example, to uh, push puberty blockers on all children, which is an extreme position, or even um, surgery, you know, gender reassignment surgery, or I should say sex reassignment surgery in, in, in minors, massive amounts massive amounts of damage, unnecessary damage. The puberty blockers are going to cause apparently problems with bones. It could sterilize these people. Um, we're seeing teenagers getting signed up for mastectomies. Once you cut their breasts off, those, those are gone. They don't grow back. Like, you know, any regret that, that comes later, they have to live with that forever. But when you start talking about like chronic problems caused by screwing around with people's hormones and their puberty and sterilization, um, what do you have abscessing in, in, in their, their genitals that could actually end up killing them? It's just a horrible nightmare. Then these wrecked, sterilized, sometimes bodies with people who end up, end up maybe having a change of heart, say when they're, you know, at the ripe old age of 19, you know, you know, the risk of suicide, you're already probably talking about people who are at risk of that, uh, even under just gender dysphoria. The risk of medical lysenkoism just in those domains, reprioritizing care, the uh, push for what they're calling trans healthcare with the backing of like the ACLU, which is tweeting about this incessantly right now, um, and other medical outfits, and then the policies around the vaccine and the virus. Um, but then what is this all going to be kind of rooted in? or what is all being pushed through? I mean, we, we know COVID, we know the trans thing, but there's also this aspect of, uh, in health equity, of an anti-racist agenda for medicine. So this article appears in the magazine Boston Review, which is a politics and something. I've got it here. I can look real quick. It is a 
According to Wikipedia, Boston Review is an American quarterly periodical and literary magazine. It publishes political, social, and historical analysis, literary and cultural criticism, book reviews, fiction, and poetry, both online and in print. Its signature form is a forum featuring a lead essay and several responses. So here we have, under the category Race, from March 17, 2021, an anti-racist agenda for medicine by Bram Wispelwi. Uh, that's a very difficult last name to say on the spot, and Michelle Morse. The uh, tag for the article underneath is Colorblind Solutions Have Failed to Achieve Racial Equity in Healthcare. We need both federal reparations and real institutional accountability. So as you will know, I, I like to read these things and kind of decode the jargon for you, and so that's what I'm going to kind of do. As I told you, I haven't read this or the other article, which is actually from Harvard, Anti-racist agenda in medicine, or for medicine. So anti-racist, we already know, means critical race theorist. Let's just cut the crap. That's what it means. It means we're going to apply critical race theorist thinking. Okay, so a critical race theory agenda for medicine is a more accurate way to approach this. So it's no surprise that we see in a, the direct accusation that colorblind solutions have failed to achieve racial equity. Of course, that's what that means. Racial equity is the thing that critical race theory cares about. Are there equal outcomes according to race? If there are not perfectly equitable outcomes, if everybody's not achieving by racial group identically according to whatever, you know, whether it's parity with the population or exactly equal standards, you know, then then you must have a racism problem somewhere in there. And so racial equity becomes the key thing that critical race theory is focused on. And the thing that it blames kind of most often is anything to do with the existing liberal system. And it really takes takes target at uh, colorblindness, to, to not putting social significance into racial categories where it matters. Colorblindness, by the way, doesn't mean not seeing color. That's a naive um, distortion of what it means. It means not putting social significance into racial categories for making decisions. It means not being prejudicial. Uh, if there, say, is a stereotype, for example, you don't act on that stereotype. You don't assume that stereotype is true of some individual. You certainly don't let that become basis for, for prejudice against that person. You don't let that become basis for discrimination against that person. You wouldn't want to racially stereotype, scapegoat, or discriminate as we hear the language in, say, the executive order that Trump issued that got rescinded by Biden, or in terms of um, these bills that many states are now passing, kind of mirroring that. Colorblind solutions have failed to achieve racial equity. Well, you shouldn't expect them to achieve racial equity, actually, uh, in healthcare. So now we're going to have a need for health equity based in achieving racial equity and health outcomes. And so this article says we be, again, this was just, you know, March 17th. So this is a new, March 17th, 2021. This is a new article. We need both federal reparations. So, <laughs> so give us money and real institutional accountability. Federal reparations will include, by the way, give us money. Real institutional accountability will be give us power change the institutions in line with what we demand and put our people in charge. That's what that's going to mean. That's what accountability really means. It means do what we say. Uh, reparations obviously means gives us, give us money according to the complaint we're about to levy. So let's read through this. I haven't read it yet. I've seen a couple parts of it that got put up on Twitter. But let's read the whole article together. I don't think it's that long. We are experienced physicians. But in the early days of the pandemic, when we, when we felt like fresh interns nervously awaiting a flood of disease presentations we had never seen before, we had a nagging sense of deja vu. 
It seemed that a disproportionate number of COVID-19 patients admitted to our Boston hospital were people of color. Well, it seemed like, and it is, is already something alarming. You guys are experienced physicians, or is your data? Maybe you have it, but why did you say seems? Why did you go with your impressions rather than with data if you're writing an article? That's already, for me, a red flag. But okay, let's just go with it. Maybe it's legit. And of course, if that's true, finding out why it's the case, uh, whether it has to do with living conditions, whether it has to do with working conditions, whether it has to do with you know, individual choices, whether it has to do with degrees of comorbidities, whether it has to, whatever it has to do with, you know, it'd be good to get to the bottom of it in truth. Um, but I don't think that that's what we're about to see. Said we asked around. No, we didn't do data. We didn't gather data. We asked around. Our colleagues corroborated. This is what John Francois Leotard warns about in the postmodern condition, by the way, as as legitimation by pyrology, which he defines as um, creating a false sense of what's true. A false sense of what's true by consensus. So we had this impression. It seemed something was happening. We asked our colleagues. They corroborated that they had the same impression. No possibility for confirmation bias here. No possibility that people are kind of, hey, yeah, you know, I never did. I never thought about it. Maybe, you know, when you could, you were physicians, you could have done hard data collection. The trend was then confirmed. Oh, now we have data. But data coming out of Milwaukee first, but not Boston, then sporadically elsewhere. Now it's a well-known and tragic fact of the pandemic. No, it's a well-known and curious fact of the pandemic. What is causing it? Where especially, you know, this is a virus that impacts people with two or more comorbidities and especially obesity. And if you track it against obesity rates, maybe you figure, a lot, figure out a lot of things. I won't even touch the vitamin D controversy here. Um, the experience was doubly jarring. However, because we had noted an analogous pattern in hospital admissions six years ago. In 2015, some of us wondered why black and Latinx patients with heart failure, Latinx, mm -hmm. yeah, nobody's Latinx, uh, black and Latinx patients with heart failure are hospital's most common diagnosis, seem more likely than white patients to end up on our general medicine service rather than on our cardiology service, where patients have better outcomes, along with a more comfortable experience, including private rooms and better amenities. In your hospital? Oh, maybe you should look into it at your hospital. Our effort to understand and correct this disparity has led us to rethink the nature of the fight for racial justice in medicine. Well, I'm very interested, I suppose, to figure out what that's about, so let's carry on. After analyzing 10 years of hospital data, we concluded that, we concluded that the trend we observed was painfully robust. White patients at Brigham and Women's Hospital, uh, Brigham and Women's Hospital, a prominent, predominantly white Harvard teaching hospital, were indeed more likely to be admitted to the cardiology service. We also found that the discrepancy, like many other racial health equity inequities, wasn't fully accounted for by insurance status, established links to, links to care, other medical conditions, or an index reflecting the socioeconomic status of, patient's neighbor, of a patient's neighborhood. In a follow-up study, we found that patient self-advocacy may play a role in these disparities. White patients were perceived to advocate for cardiology admission more often and more intensely, and providers acknowledged such behavior impacted their decision-making. Alarmed by these findings, okay, so we don't know what's causing it. There seemed to be some advocacy thing going on. Advocacy is something literally any human being that wants to can do. Um, it apparently had an impact, but they're alarmed by these findings. <sighs> it's exhausting to read. Alarmed by these findings. So the conclusion will obviously be that, that you know, 
doing outreach to try to to train, you know, to to make people aware of the importance of patient advocacy is especially in maybe, you know, certain neighborhoods or communities or whatever, maybe is going to be helpful. I don't even like the word communities. Maybe they're going to reach out and try to tell people, you know, hey, advocating for yourself matters. I actually know somebody, by the way, who was just recently uh, in the hospital for a heart condition, as it turns out, and he had to be his own patient advocate. Uh, He was not getting the care he needed. turns out that he is by most people's standards white. And until he started actually asking for it and making calls to his, uh, his physician outside of the hospital to make calls on his behalf and leveraging and being his own so-called patient advocate, that they uh, did not actually give him that same level of care. But he's white, so clearly that would disrupt the narrative. Um, it also turned out that he had also been hospitalized for the same issue a few weeks before and diagnosed merely with edema, which is swelling and uh, dismissed despite the fact that there was actually an issue going on that a cardiologist should have been addressing. And um, he had not done sufficient patient act, uh, you know, patient advocacy for himself in that case and wasn't able to leverage his other physician to do so. So maybe that's a significant variable and maybe people realizing that they do need to speak up. I mean, I know personally myself that unless somebody told me, look, you're going to have to speak up or they're not going to do it, I would be too polite. I'd be too quiet. I wouldn't probably try to speak up on my behalf. I wouldn't think it's necessarily my place to do so. So maybe a little patient advocacy um, education is going to be their suggestion, but they're alarmed by these findings anyway. And we saw for an immediate solution. As we began to advocate for change within our institution, however, yeah, just change the whole institution, no outreach, change the institution, we encountered significant resistance to calling this discrepancy an instance of institutional racism and in making race-explicit interventions, even at a time when the documentation of racial health inequities is accelerating. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack here. Look at this. This is so garbage. Okay. As we began to advocate for change within our institution, so they started to take up activism, we met resistance to our preferred narrative, which is even more alarming, even though we've already admitted that there was probably another possible explanation. And then our, our, they even tell you, you know, we tried to call this discrepancy an institu- instance of institutional racism, so we made an accusation against our hospital that's probably not true. The hospital probably isn't actually institutionally racist. It's probably colorblind, which is what they're going to take target at. And that they should make race explicit interventions. They should now make interventions intentionally based on race. They should actually bias care based on race. That's the recommendation. And they rent resistance to this, which they would then interpret as further evidence of institutional racism because of critical race theory thinks. This is how these people confuse themselves and how they confuse and hoodwink others because this sounds fairly reasonable until you understand that that's what they're doing. So they say, even at a time when the documentation of racial health equities is ex- inequities is accelerating. Did they say that at a time when racial health inequities is accelerating? No. They said at a time when the documentation of them is accelerating. Really? Under an ideology that documents every possible inequity and tries to leverage this for its narrative? That the documentation is increasing? Really? So documentation is accelerating doesn't mean that the issue is accelerating. This is, again, misleading at best. In medicine, as in other domains, the default options for addressing racial inequality are, oh, we've switched to inequality from inequity, 
are often limited. Implicit bias training, which is stupid and doesn't work and has no evidence in its support, so why would you do that? Diversity and inclusion efforts, which also have basically no impact except making things more racially tense in hostile working environments and alienating people who now get treated weird because of their race at work because you brought all this crap up in a weird way, which doesn't work. So, yeah. Uh, let's see. The adoption of supposedly objective checklist-style clinical criteria for decision-making. That's... that's um, that's apparently limited, you know, being objective would be limited because it doesn't reprioritize. It doesn't, it focuses on making equality at the front end rather than equality at the back end. You know, you could put on your checklist, did the patient engage in advocacy for themselves? Should we encourage that? That's not probably on the checklist though. Maybe it is. Um, these policies, they write, they help to mitigate some health inequities. Increasing racial and ethnic diversity of healthcare providers is essential given the evidence that black patients with black providers have better outcomes in many contexts. Um, this is, has a link to it, and I don't know what these many contexts are. I frankly don't know why that is the case. I can tell you that as a person who was raised in a properly colorblind thing, and I just saw that thing going around on Twitter, which I assume but maybe isn't, accurate that white people tend not to see racial difference in any real significance, but every other race does, um, that I don't care. I don't care the race of the person working in my car. I don't care the race of the person working on me. I don't care the race. I went, I went to college. I had professors of literally like 80 billion races. I don't know how many with very strong accents in some cases and very weak accents in other cases and across the gamut. And you learn to like, this doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. You, uh, the learning to was learn to understand the accent so you can learn from these people. I had some, some professors that were very difficult to understand for the first couple of weeks, and you catch up, and you get you get the hang of it, right? Um, so I don't understand, you know, what these many contexts are, but okay, I'll take it as a given. Well, what do they say about this? But history has convinced us that these options are not sufficient. Implicit bias trainings and checklists offer indirect solutions. Actually, Im implicit bias training offers no solutions because it's stupid. It doesn't work. It has no evidence in its favor. There's absolutely no evidence supporting that implicit bias translates from um, to any degree that it meaningfully exists, which is like literally supposed to be tens of uh, milliseconds, I should say. No, yeah, tens of tens of milliseconds in decision-making process in the in word associations and picture associations is somehow going to translate into it. Should, there's no evidence that after the age of 12 years old, by 12 years old, people have learned that there any implicit bias that exists does not translate into ex, explicit bias. None. It, it, it's, it's pseudoscience. It's absolute garbage. So of course it's not sufficient. It can't do anything. In fact, all it does is again, create racial discomfort in the areas where it's applied because it's garbage and it raises race salience, puts social significance in a race. It makes people think about these things. It makes people second guess themselves, which is horrific in a, you know, in a short term, you know, quick decision making process. Imagine with cops, right? Imagine if they have to add in that extra couple of millisecond or extra second or two to think, am I going to get accused of racism for defending myself or protecting somebody here? No, it's a horrific, stupid approach, but of course it's it's not sufficient. It, it can't do anything. You're you're applying a tool that isn't meant to to achieve what you're claiming it's meant to achieve. Checklists offer indirect solutions. Well, if you maybe you make the checklist better, um, have you tried that? 
have you asked people? Have you tried? Where's your outreach? No outreach, right? Um, when, <laughs> why are these indirect solutions? Because there are more direct forms of race explicit action available. The objectivity aspired to in clinical criteria is also inevitably tainted by the pervasiveness of structural racism. So you just in focus a specter. Structural racism is a concept in critical race theory that doesn't actually have any real evidence supporting it. There's probably very little or no structural racism at a Harvard-based hospital. It's probably one of the least structurally racist places in the friggin' universe. So what do they say? What we need instead we have come to believe, is a proactively anti-racist agenda for medicine. Our path to this realization, um, I'm trying to make sure that these pull quotes are, are redundant, sorry. Our path to this realization, as with nearly all advancements in social medicine, took us outside of our discipline. No kidding, you had to leave medicine and go adopt some ideological position through the field of critical race theory, CRT in particular. This is Lysenkoism. You are now taking an ideology and placing it over a biological science that has some kind of real application. This is medical Lysenkoism. Ideology. We had to leave the confines of medical science, biological science, even social science, and go into critical race theory. A activist movement that believes that racism is endemic to everything. This body of scholarship, they write, emerged 30 years ago when a group of legal scholars challenged the conventional wisdom that colorblind civil rights efforts could effectively dismantle structural racism. Remember, structural racism isn't real. Structural racism is an invention to categorize that which is, to, to name as racism, the mysterious set of forces, the mysterious set of everything that happens that, res, that, that allegedly results in there being disparate outcomes by race. Okay. Colorblind civil rights is the thing they wanted to take on. So now we're going to have this medical Lysenkoism. We're going to leave the confines of medical science and we're going to go into ideological activism and critical race theory. We're going to go into medical Lysenkoism to throw out the idea of colorblind civil rights and here colorblind application to medicine. Very, very, very dangerous. And what do they say? Quote, the general use of so-called neutral standards to continue exclusionary practices, Harvard Law Professor Derek Bell argued in 1992, quote, reduces the effectiveness of traditional civil rights laws while rendering discriminatory actions more oppressive than ever. Did you catch this? This is Derek Bell is the founder of critical race theory. Before Kimberly Crenshaw's protege who named critical race theory, Derek Bell was the first guy practicing it. Harvard Law Professor the general use of so-called neutral standards. So he calls into question the idea that neutrality in standards can even exist. Okay, here's a, here's this weird standard. Can you pick up a rock? That's a neutral standard. You either can or you cannot. But now, apparently, if we were to say take a man and a woman and who are, you know, on average, statistically, greatly different strength, if they're an average man and an average woman, all of a sudden they would say that that standard's not so-called neutral. It's disadvantageous to the woman. It's still a neutral standard. It doesn't care who tries to pick up the rock, whether it be man, woman, robot, dump truck, you know, steam shovel. It doesn't matter what's trying to pick it up. That is actually a neutral standard. Or more realistically, here's this standardized test, the SHSAT. This is what test might get you into the specialized high schools like Stuyvesant in New York City, which take 
if you apply to Stuyvesant, they look at your SHSAT scores and the top 200 get in. Well, up until very recently, anyway, they're apparently changing that. Neutral standard. So-called neutral standard, though. Remember how mad these people got just, by the way, at Trump calling things so-called? Um, so-called neutral standards to continue, the general use of so-called neutral standards to continue exclusionary practices. So he's now saying that the standards aren't neutral and they're being used to, to, to continue exclusionary practices, like not letting people who can't pick up the rock advance past a strength test. Say, maybe you have to pick up the rock to become a firefighter. Or to, you have to pass the test to get into the, to the specialized high school. That's an exclusionary practice because it excludes people who can't pass the freaking test. They can't reach the neutral standard. Um, this is what Harvard law professor Derek Bell argued in 1992. The general use of these so-called neutral standards to continue exclusionary practices, meaning not letting unqualified people in, reduces the effectiveness of traditional civil rights laws while rendering discriminatory, discriminatory actions more oppressive than ever. Because why? Because you don't have, if the standard is neutral, you don't have any way to push back. That would have been Bell's argument here without even having to look up this particular citation if it were given. Um, because if the standard is fair, if the standard is actually neutral, then how could you possibly f complain about it? You know, you can either pick up the rock or you can't. So critical race theory says that these, so these neutral standards, because the races are subject, not that they're biologically different to one another. They're very against that idea, but rather because they are subject to different social experiences as a group as a group. So there is an essential kind of concept of what it means to be a black person in society socially. It doesn't matter how many people don't experience that. Doesn't Black people don't experience There's an essential experience of being black in this country. And that puts limitations on, the, on, on what it means to be black so that now your neutral standard is not neutral. The neutral standard is disadvantageous to black people. And if the standard itself is neutral and fair, that makes it even worse because there's absolutely nothing that that they can do to argue and say that it's not fair. So now discrimination becomes even worse. And uh, this was Derek Bell's view. This is this is critical race theory's view. And you might say, well, there is something to that. And I suppose that yeah, there is there is I guess something to that. If you actually grow up in a household, for example, that has uh, perhaps. Um, of strongly different dialect of English. Say, for example, you grow up in a hillbilly household down here in Appalachia where I live, and you you don't realize that words that end in I-N-G have a G on the end of them because that's where you happen to grow up. And then you go take a spelling test or a speech test or whatever it happens to be in school, and it's a standardized test. Maybe you're at a disadvantage because of that. You know, maybe that's the case. Um, but it seems weird because the option then is we must just get rid of the standard. Having a standard for spoken English and communication Therefore, in a particular language, having a standard at all is the problem because the standard can't possibly be neutral because somebody might have a dialect like, you know, a thick Louisiana accent or a thick Appalachian accent, or I suppose African-American vernacular, which is the thing I'm pretending we're not talking about, which they would call white talk, um, because your Louisiana accent doesn't count and neither does your Appalachian one. doesn't matter. Those don't count under critical race theory. You're still white. So after more than five decades, they write, of colorblind law, the phenomenon Bell described has only worsened. No, it hasn't. Actually, it has not. 
uh, and the stubborn persistence of racial inequities, both in healthcare and across society at large, gives the lie to the effectiveness of colorblind policies. Well, okay, let's take at face value that there is a stubborn persistence of racial inequities. I just saw some data about this earlier, and it seems to be partly true, but they have actually shrunk uh, for the most part. Um, we're not seeing great results in educational attainment, however, unfortunately. And uh, then the question becomes why? Of course, if you believe in structural or systemic racism, it's everything combines in a mysterious way that nobody can actually point out any details about very vaguely to create different outcomes. And that's terrible and we have to overturn the whole system. And that's sort of the argument that these ideologues have left medicine to adopt. They don't want to actually understand the root causes of these stubborn, persistent racial inequities. They want to say that it, the system itself just needs to be remade with their ideas in power. It's not a serious approach at all. This is not a serious approach to solving problems. And in fact, because it's medical isenchoism, it's going to kill people. Uh, it's going to kill lots of people the longer it runs, um, or at least result in them having vastly worse medical care, which will kill statistically some of them and will maim some of them and will uh, create tremendous um, tremendous changes in their, their state of well-being uh, I don't want to talk about the cases of people I know who have been negatively impacted by the uh, COVID vaccine, but they're going to live partially crippled and uh, in pain for the rest of their lives if it is in fact the case. It's not certain, but the doctors suspect that it, and the timing suggests that the vaccine had something to do with it. Um, we start to try to apply broken medical care that's service in, in service to some ideology you are going to see people getting the wrong thing done to them or taking, uh, treating them or whatever, and you're going to have these kinds of bad, bad outcomes. Um, but they say that this, this, this article says this gives the lie to the effectiveness of colorblind policies. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Colorblind policies were working. It turns out, and nobody's allowed to say it, that the overwhelming determinant for these things are ultimately cultural factors. If you want to call them structural factors, like how many parents you have in the home and how stable your home is and how stable your neighborhood is, fine, call those structural, whatever. But those are things that are not what they're assessing, they're accusing. This is not this is not a justification for what they're about to unleash, because I know where this is going now. Um, so what do they, let's go just back into them, I don't want to just keep rambling. Yet, such solutions remain the go-to, meaning colorblind solutions. Not discriminating in medicine remains the go-to response. That's the problem they're complaining about here. Restricting the range of tools at our disposal for making desperately needed change and even inviting charges by prominent physicians that speaking of racism is counterproductive. It is counterproductive, but this is an important point about critical race theory. Critical race theory believes that every single thing you do, including in a hospital, where you should be practicing medicine, that isn't critical race theory, is a misuse of resources. So they're even inviting charges by prominent physicians that speaking of racism is counterproductive. Speaking of racism in the critical race theory terms is counterproductive, though. Speaking of racism when you should be doing some other work is counterproductive, or at least unproductive. So it's a complete fraud. But recognizing this problem, they write, public health scholars... Chandra Ford and Collins uh, Are Henbois brought CRT's legal approach to the public health realm in 2010, 
with their landmark proposal of a public health critical race framework. I'm sure that's a wonderful read. Following their lead, we have sought to implement that framework in our own advocacy and clinical work on equitable heart failure admissions. Together with a coalition of fellow practitioners and hospital leaders, we have developed what we hope will be a replicable pilot program for direct redress of many health care inequities, one that takes seriously the limitations of colorblind solutions and empowers institutions in variety of contexts that can't possibly be the right grammar, in variety of contexts to take decisive action to achieve racial equity. Building on the calls for reparations, we call this vision for medical we call this a vision for medical restitution. So what is what what on earth does medical restitution involve? Remember this whole thing, all critical race theory, all woke everything is corruption. There's always a grift. There's always a grift. There's always some kind of deal where they're going to put people that they favor, nepotism, it's, it's like cronyism into power. It's always a grift that there's somehow going to be money going to certain people that they favor. It's always a grift. What do we have here under medical restitution? Building on calls for reparations, they say. Federally paid reparations, urgent and long overdue. Well, that's an opinion. That's not a fact. Especially the urgent part. Urgent? I thought urgency was supposed to be one of those markers of white supremacy culture, according to like all the other documents they put out. Um, Iron Law of Woke Projection. It shows up everywhere. Would help to mitigate racial health inequities, including those seen in COVID-19 but they would not on their own and institutional and structural racism. Okay, so how? Federally paid res reparations would help to mitigate racial health inequities. How? There's no argument for how. At least not yet. Maybe it comes later. How? How is just giving people money going to remedy health inequities that are probably caused by other things? Maybe like eating bad food, which you can say is a factor of poverty. And in some cases, maybe it is, but it might actually be a factory like it is here in the southeast or in Appalachia of liking to eat bad food. Cornbread made with butter and lard is a very white southern Appalachian thing. Fried chicken is a very southern white Appalachian thing. Lots of like pork, fat, fat, fat. I mean, Appalachian food is not famous for being good for you. And lots of very obese, lots of very obese Appalachians. Um, Maybe if we just gave them all a lot of money, they would probably stop eating, you know, so much cornbread or what, buttery, lard-laden cornbread. Maybe that's what would happen. Maybe they would bail out on, on that. I somehow don't think that that's the case, right? I somehow don't think that's the case. But even if we did do that, it wouldn't be enough, they say, because on their own, this would not end institutional and structural racism, which, by the way, they've assumed are there, but they haven't actually demonstrated there. They just show that there are certain inequities and concluded that it must be structural and institutional racism, which when they brought it up to their hospital, those charges were apparently rebuffed. People said, no, this isn't true. No, this is not the correct analysis of what's going on. And then the reason is we're actually colorblind here. And there's, now they're turning around and saying no, color, colorblindness is institutional and structural racism. Get your head around that. Colorblindness is institutional and structural racism is one of the arguments of critical race theory that these doctors have taken up. Experienced physicians, we, we read at the beginning. So we believe we must pursue restitution programs at the institutional level while also advocating for federal reparations. So government, give us money. There's your grift, but it's not going to actually solve the problem. It might help with one aspect of things, but it's not going to solve the problem because what we need is more than money. We need power. We need more. We need to remake the system. 
Okay, so so this is already really bad, and we haven't even got to the really bad part yet. Um, our case for medical restitution extends calls for reparations for black Americans, which have a long history in the United States. Um, yeah, and a long history of being shown to be probably a bad idea for a lot of reasons in the United States. As the historian Robin, Robin D.G. Kelly notes in his 2000 book Freedom Dreams, they stretch back well before the Civil War. So? So? They're old. I mean, arguments that we should be a Christian theocracy, for example, which violates the secular principle of freedom of religion in the First Amendment, stretch back to before the Constitution. So what? Who cares how old calls for something are? The visibility has grown in recent years, with much momentum building on Tana Hissy Coates' influential 2014 Atlantic essay, The Case for Reparations. Of course, he's their poet laureate. And they reach they are reaching a new pitch in the wake of COVID-19 and re- because they have a crisis to exploit and renewed protests over police brutality against black Americans. Too bad all of those stories are pretty shady looking. Um, could have picked better ones if they exist, but it turned that would be that, that's not how the narrative works. A recent House Judiciary Committee hearing on H.R. 40, a bill to create a commission to study reparations, is another positive sign. Okay, so the Democrats want to do this, so therefore it's probably great. Um, Few have done more to develop the case than Duke University economist Willem Doherty Jr. Doherty, I guess is how you probably pronounce it, whose recent book with A. Kristen Mullen, From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century, advances a vision of reparations as a program of acknowledgement, redress, and closure for grievous injustice. That's not how this works. There will be no closure. You give reparations, the reparations are not going to be enough. We literally have already seen that where reparations have been offered, $25,000 or something, and immediately it's not enough. You could give 2,500,000 billion, jillion, jillion times 10 to the 375th power dollars, and it still wouldn't be enough because we would still have structural racism because structural racism is magical and invisible, and it's everything that's different that doesn't work out in our advantage. This isn't going to work. It's already been put to the test and it didn't work. But let's just carry on with our article. What effect would reparations have on systemic inequities in the healthcare system? Two prominent public health scholars, Mary T. Bassett and Sandra Galea, explored this question in the New England Journal of Medicine, which, by the way, the New England Journal of Medicine, literally I saw today, published an article recently saying that children who get their COVID vaccine should be encouraged to show that they're they're vaccine stars. They should be encouraged to wear stars when they get their vaccines. Like, really? That was in the New England Journal of Medicine. New England Journal of Medicine recommends that people who get their vaccines should wear stars. Where has this logic ever come up before? The New England Journal of Medicine has been publishing absolutely nonsense, woke stuff for months now. And this apparently is a case in point. This is how the idea laundering process works. You now have prominent medical journals publishing stupid critical race theory takes because they feel guilty and get 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 leveraged if they don't, like we're seeing with the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA, where they had that podcast that came out, and they have a guy who's totally on board, a total progressive, total woke guy pushing the whole systemic racism thing like eight times in a 15-minute podcast, one time hesitates on some of their 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 analysis, and they cancel him. They get the editor who published a podcast fired. They're trying to do a complete uh, ideological takeover of the American Medical Association and the Journal of the Medi- American Medical Association, then what? They're going to publish lots more of this woke garbage, and then they're going to be able to turn around in articles like this and cite that woke garbage in these high-level journals and say, oh, look, it's real. So there is an article in this New England Journal of Garbage now 
identifying three pathways through which federally paid reparations for black Americans might mitigate health disparities. It's an opinion piece. One is the immediate expansion of limited financial resources, which would increase the ability to obtain health-producing resources such as better neighborhoods, better schools, and access to cleaner air. Um, That's a stretch, maybe. The second is via reductions in stress within affected communities. Stress. Reductions in stress. An increasingly recognized contributor to poor health. That's pretty vague. We're talking about stress. We're talking about how big are the reparations going to be if they're going to be able to move to new neighborhoods, right? Um, And the third is via intergenerational effects. Oh, yeah, intergenerational effects. Here we're going to, this is going to be interesting. Health is produced, this is a quote, health is produced over the life course and across generations, the authors write. In any effort in the present level, in any effort in the present to level the wealth playing field could reset the potential wealth and assets and consequent health of future generations. Okay, so Lysenko had a completely, Trofim Lysenko had a completely bogus idea of inheritance, and who would have been surprised to find out that within medical Lysenkoism, we're going to have this generational health concept that links to generational wealth. It also is probably going to, you get this concept floating around in these things that like post, what is it, post-traumatic slave syndrome which is that they claim, literally, based on epigenetics, which is extremely close to the Lamarckism of, of that Trofim Lysenko took up, that the trauma and stress has literally made it into the DNA of people who are descendants of slaves, whereas the people who are descendants of slave owners, thus somehow extended to most or all white people by proxy, and the centuries of privilege has made their DNA crueler. This is actually an argument out there in kind of critical race theory where it starts to land into this epigenetic non. This is literally mirroring Lysenkoism. It's just not playing out in, bi- in, in agriculture, that being an offshoot of biology in a sense. It's playing out in medicine. Um, these are compelling arguments. I don't think so. And there is even more that might be said on the first point. Ability to pay determines much of one's access to healthcare in the United States and, and inequities in Uninsurance and insurance type are driven in large part by employment status, where institutional racism has long disadvantaged black Americans. Unequal access to care continues to be shaped by persistent housing inequality and racial segregation in both urban and rural areas. The result of historical policies such as redlining, blockbusting, and contract buying, which in turn only further entrenched wealth inequality. They don't mention the the welfare state that was established under the Great Society program, and which is literally what critical race theory was invented to try to continue, um, literally invented to try to continue, which actually led to the massive breaking down of the home. They don't mention that one. No, it's these horrible things that happened before all that, which are horrible. Um, they don't mention the thing that actually prevented that actually prevented stable homes and neighborhoods from being able to develop, which was largely the great, not entirely, but largely the great society programs. And also this entire identity movement, identity politics is bad for almost all the identities involved because it encourages um, identity protectionism or cultural protectionism, which again, I can appeal to Appalachia, has not been something that's worked out for Appalachians, and we can't say that that's race because they're white. Cultural protectionism creates its own problems. 
But they argue by reducing the racial wealth gap, just redistribute money, everything will fix itself. Federal reparations would help to mitigate all of these problems. There's no there's no evidence that this would actually work. They're just saying it. Maybe it's true. I don't want to be dismissive, but th- there's no evidence that that actually would work. It's it's just an assertion that if you just give people money, that these good things will happen. It's a it's a failure to understand what giving people money tends to do, which is also known. In, in small percentages of cases, it does have these transformational outcomes. In large percentages of cases, it does not. Study what happens to lottery winners. Study what happens to like one-hit wonder musicians and artists. Look at what happens to them. In small percentages of the cases, it has transformational outcomes. In large percentages of cases, it does not. It turns out to be a blip on the radar, good time for a year or two, back into the problems in the end. Um, but in order to comprehensively, this is where the article takes its dark turn, by the way, and I don't know if we're actually going to have time, this is longer than I thought, to read both of these. We'll get to the Harvard one another time. But in order to comprehensively confront structural racism, we think that there are at least two reasons that federal reparations must be supplemented by localized anti, sorry, localized anti-racist institutional efforts of the kind we propose below. First, many existing health inequities persist even after controlling for socioeconomic factors. Okay. Our own heart failure study illustrates how factors such as patient self-advocacy and provider bias, well, you didn't actually establish provider bias, you just established patient self-advocacy, was significant. You never even mentioned provider bias before, you've just stuck it here. Shape racial discrepancies in healthcare outcomes. For another stark example, consider the numerous stories, stories, stories of white elites presenting for COVID-19 vaccinations in impoverished neighborhoods of color. Yeah, well, you, you dangled the damn thing out in front of people for, for friggin' months. Then you try to force it on people in people of color in neighborhoods. <sighs> their own policy failures become fodder for the next generation of their arguments. It's stories, though. Stories. Consider the numerous stories. Data? Data, anybody? Other racial health inequities unlikely to be alleviated by federal reparations, at least in the short term, include... The failure of hospitals and academic medical centers to hire faculty and staff that reflect the patient's racial diversity. If you don't look like us, we can't provide proper education and medicine to you. Segregation. They're calling for segregation. They're calling for diversity hires, which will have to have the right views. They're going to have to have the right politics. You know how it works. We've talked about diversity before. What else do they list? The undertreatment of black patients' pain. I mean, I don't know about this. There's a link. I'm not reading it right now. Longer wait times for patients of color. There's a link. I, I don't know the details. Poor research funding for diseases like sickle cell that impact relatively few white people. Don't you know, you know, you guys are also doing that kidney thing where you're going to kill black people by deciding that it's racist to pay attention to an important uh, marker of kidney health. So let's not play both sides of that right here and a lack of appropriate care or lower quality care for black patients. There's a link, so I don't know, maybe it's maybe it's established. Even when being seen at the same facility by the same providers for the same condition with the same health insurance as white patients. Maybe that's true. I don't know. What I do know is that every time I follow every time I followed up one of these links somehow it's bogus. So, we'll just skip skip over that for now. We'll take it at face value. Maybe they're right. Structural and institutional racism thus led to health inequities beyond the immediate reach of financial restitution, but within the purview of medical institutions. While it is possible that the complex effects of federal reparations could, over time, help to mitigate these mechanisms of inequitable care, they are unlikely to do so in the short term. 
In the meantime, institutions must be held accountable. In other words, you got to do what we say. That's what I told you. Second, trust between patients and providers is a prerequisite for equitable care, but federal reparations are unlikely to have a direct effect on the trustworthiness of medical personnel. This is especially true at predominantly white institutions where black patients have long acknowledged being harmed and made to feel unwelcome. Long acknowledged. Well, maybe it's true. Acknowledgement, I would like to see, you know, something more than this, but maybe it's true. This erosion of trust, and and I'd also like to know why, especially if you have anti-discrimination like everywhere and racial bias lawsuits everywhere and medical professionals terror, I would like to know why this seems to be the experience. Who are the patients coming in that are experiencing this? Who are they? It matters. It matters. I've been in the hospital myself where I've seen people of, of different races, in fact, um, who are very mentally unwell, who are sometimes homeless, very mentally unwell, acting in ways that are pretty out of control and they have to be restrained and things like that. So what are the circumstances around this claim? This is why a really granu- a really non-granular, really vague category like race is not sufficient. And then just assuming that racism is the cause when there are probably other causes in play, using the category of race as the relevant variable may, which is what critical race theory wants to do, may actually obscure figuring out what's really going on. And that is a tragedy that's avoidable. This is something, this is again, stop sticking ideology into somewhere that it really shouldn't be and stop sticking race into a place where it doesn't belong and racism into a place where it doesn't belong, which is what critical race theory does by definition, by practice. This erosion of trust in the medical system has a number of explanations. You know, you just mentioned the vaccine thing, right? The neighborhoods of color. And, you know, there was a lot of distrust in that because a lot of black people recognized that this looked an awful lot like those uh, Tuskegee experiments where, where they, (laughs) you know, like, let's take this experimental vaccine. By the way, we're going to prioritize black and brown people. You guys get it first. And we're going to put it in poor neighborhoods first too. Good luck. Let's see what happens. We haven't really tested this one yet. A lot of people saw through that and they're a bit nervous, right? So now you're just going to talk about the erosion of trust. You guys are causing the erosion of trust with your stupid policies too. Um, Not to say that the history has been great and I don't want to speak into that too much, but good Lord, have some self-awareness, right? But the most salient they write, along with the the systematic denial of equal institutional access and care, maybe, you know, they have evidence on their side. It's not, maybe it's not just denial, Ibram Kendi, is the long legacy of medical injustice perpetrated against communities of color. Many studies have analyzed the various forms of racism ingrained in the U.S. medical practice and research from historic examples, there's your Tuskegee that they're going to glaze right over because they're copying it right now, down to the present day, like your COVID crap where you're going to shove it into black neighbor, poor black neighborhoods first for equity. And they're like, wait a minute, you've medically experimented on us before. We know this trick. All of these help to explain why black or indigenous patients or communities may be hesitant to seek out medical care or to welcome the advice and the treatment plans of health professionals. These are people who believe their shit doesn't stink. They believe that they've never made a friggin' mistake in their lives that they are con- that they because they have the right feeling in their heart. They have the ideology of helping people that they couldn't possibly be making bad decisions that freak people out. We've seen this consistently around COVID. We see this consistently here too. 
Rather than being understood as a historically warranted adaptive response toward eluding depredation, however, patient mistrust has often been framed as a brute driver of racial health inequities. <sighs> frustrating. In some accounts, mistrust is portrayed not as a vital survival instinct, but as the fault of communities behaving irrationally. Okay, so what's going on here is they're saying, you know, it's not actually a rational response on the part of um, these, say, black community. I don't like to use these racial categories in that way, and I think we should get away from it. They're literally diving into the argument that they are making rational decisions, and then other people said, no, 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 it's irrational, right? Uh, we've fixed those problems, so that's it's irrational. And they're saying, no, 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 you know, history has shown these communities that they have a reason to distrust the, the medical establishment, and they're literally doing the exact same thing with their stupid COVID racial equity program. They're literally doing the exact same thing. It's absolute unwillingness to look themselves in the mirror and see that they're fuck-ups. Typical, typical, typical ideological thing. Same thing as Trofim Lysenko, except that Trofim Lysenko was literally getting people killed and carted off to the gulag and sent off to Siberia and put into labor camps for his same inability to do any self-reflection. But of course, there was criticism for years and years and years before Trofim Lysenko was given that power. We could be in the very, and I, I think we are, in the very early stages, unless this gets nipped in the bud, of heading the Lysenko direction. <sighs> Had to take a deep sigh after that. Let's see. In some accounts, mistrust is portrayed not as a vital survival. Oh, I already read that. Um, irrationally, or as a symptom that it can be treated through, or as a symptom that can be treated through such policies as education campaigns or voucher programs without addressing the underlying cause. What do you think it is? Is it, you know, we were actually horrible in the past and people don't trust people who are horrible in the past? No, they just say institutional racism. They don't clarify. It's not necessarily institutional racism that's currently still happening. It's institutional racism that took place in the past. There's no attempt to clarify here. So then they can leverage, oh, institutional racism is still happening. What do they say? As pediatrician and community, this is equivocating between things that really were bad in the past and things that probably are not happening in the present. Okay, that's the trick. Equivocating upon things that were really actually bad in the past, which they bring up endlessly, so they can equivocate by blending that, by conflating that with stuff that is not happening in the in the present, by saying it must still be happening in the present because look, there are inequities. That's that's the depth of their brilliant analysis here. As pediatrician and community health advocate, community health advocate, okie dokie, uh, Rhea W. Boyd and colleagues have written regarding the academic fallout of the Tuskegee. I just said it right earlier, Tuskegee syphilis experiment, decades of research have evaded the profitability of suffering to instead belabor patient trust as a cause of health disparities. Okay, we've already covered that. Rather than ask what response to past harm might make our institutions worthy of trust, dude, you're not getting it back that way. And what do you do? Your COVID policy is continuing it. And you're like, why don't they trust us? Look in the friggin' mirror, you guys. Your racial, your your focus on race, rather than to stop focusing on race all the time, is what's freaking everybody out. Or what do they say? The effect is to lay blame on the marginalized communities and distract from the underlying source of mistrust. Iron Law Evoke projection. The reality is that sustainable impacts on tr sustainable impacts 
on trust will only emerge from institutional reckoning with racism as the true ideology of racial health inequities. No, it won't. It will emerge from practicing colorblind policies for long enough for people to start trusting you again and to continue to have good results. Be colorblind, create good results. For both of these reasons, they write, we believe anti-racist institutional change is essential to supplement federal reparations. Those are some big claims. If we are serious about achieving equity both now and after federal reparations are paid, we must also pursue institutional action. Crucial to this work is a pragmatic orientation to what philosopher Naomi Zak calls applicative justice, applying justice to those who don't now receive it, as opposed to more idealistic conceptions of justice, whether derived from John Rawls, a very progressive liberal philosopher, or John Locke, very famous liberal philosopher, uh, a bit older, on which some arguments uh, for reparations are based. This is exactly what we have tried to achieve in the design of our new pilot initiative at Brigham and Women's Hospital to set launch later this spring. So this, whatever they're about to propose is actually going to happen. Adapting Darity's reparations framework of acknowledgement, redress, and closure, ARC, they love these acronyms, to an institutional level, we have designed a program, we call it Healing Arc, with initiatives for all three components. Each centers Black and Latinx patients, centers Black and Latinx patients and community members, those most affected, or sorry, those most impacted by unjust heart failure management and under whose direction appropriate restitution can begin to take shape. As Darity explains it, acknowledgement involves recognition and admission of the wrong by the perpetrators or beneficiaries of the injustice. In our case, we take acknowledgement to entail informing patients about our heart failure findings at our hospital. So you want them to have trust. So you tell them, yeah, you know, we don't really know what's going on here. So we're going to tell you that our hospital's racist. Brilliant. Claiming responsibility and incorporating community ideas for redress. Yeah, you know, just like you turn to the ideology to get redress. Now just ask people in the community how you should probably run your hospital. Um, to this end, we are assembling focus groups from five priority communities, the neighborhoods with some of the highest populations of Black and Latinx. There are no Latinx people at residents in the city of Boston to explain our findings, listen to responses and suggestions, and offer space to discuss a path forward. These focus groups will ensure that, that the community oversight is an integral component of the program. Remember, this is the heal, this is the acknowledgement part of, of, of their arc, healing arc. We're also recruiting heart failure patients who are intimately familiar with the hospital's admission process and the intricacies of inpatient and outpatient care to participate as co-collaborators. Providers will acknowledge that our heart failure inequities at relevant points of entry into care, ensuring patients are aware of this history and what is being done to redress it. So they're so they're going to acknowledge to pay. They're going to tell telling people that their hospital's racist because they want to build trust that their hospital's not racist. They're freaking brilliant. These people. It's like their their diversity programs start with "I am a racist." Well, why should we listen to you then? We oh, you have to acknowledge your racism first. This is the stupidest program I've ever heard in my life. I've heard so many stories from people who go through these like brown fragility trainings and white fragility trainings where like they have to admit how racist they've been to other people at their office like how they have all these racist thoughts and all these people who are racial minorities in the office are like wow i didn't know all my colleagues are racist against me here wow i didn't know how many people here were racist and this acknowledgement didn't make their working experience better it made it worse this is so stupid it's so stupid so ham-fisted you couldn't possibly do this worse you couldn't possibly get this more backwards so you're going to increase trust 
in, in people who think that your medical system is racist by telling them that the medical system is racist because you're under this delusion that if you confess your sin, people are going to trust you more. That's what's going on here. So now step two of ARC is redress. Redress is simultaneously the most substantial and the most unprecedented component of our healing arc. In general, institutional redress should involve not just a direct solution to monitor and end health inequities. Remember, that just means differences in outcomes. Not necessarily to explain them. But to offer restitution for past and present injustices. Redress could take multiple forms from cash transfers and discounted or free care to taxes on nonprofit hospitals that exclude patients of color. What the hell does it? Who excludes patients of color? Nobody does that. That's illegal. And race-explicit protocol changes such as preferentially admitting patients historically denied access to certain forms of medical care. Preferentially admitting patients historically denied access. Okay, no patient was historically denied access. Or maybe there are a few that are still alive. That hasn't been allowed. That hasn't been legal in the country since the 1960s. There are some people who were alive then, granted, but not a lot, proportionally speaking. You're talking about people whose ancestors were denied access, and so now you're going to give them preferential admittance. Race-explicit protocol changes. Cash transfers. Discounted and free care. Taxes on nonprofit hospitals. Taxing a nonprofit hospital that excludes patients of color. What in the world are they talking about? Where is that even happening? They don't have a link. They don't name any that are doing this. The case for redress is particularly urgent, again, with their, their white supremacy culture here, for academic medical centers such as our hospital, because we're feeling super guilty here. Because they receive enormous amounts of public funding through federal grants, nonprofit, tax-exempt status, and Medicare and Medicaid payments, among others, legal scholars have convincingly argued, convincing to you, they have a special legal obligation to ensure equitable outcomes over under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Uh, they have a special legal obligation to have colorblind practices according to the Civil Rights Act under Title VI of 1964 when they made it illegal, like we were just talking about, not to produce equitable outcomes. I mean, maybe the thing argues that, but equitable outcomes are not a good measure because there are many variables that lead to inequitable outcomes that aren't all racism, and Title VI demands no discrimination. This is a total manipulation of, of Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to their, their advantage. Even as academic medical centers increasingly attempt to bring their rhetoric and anti-racist, that's in scare quotes, declarations in line with that of racial justice activists, Jesus Christ, do medicine. Their business plans pivot away from the material reckoning that is necessary to address racial health inequities. Sean Johnson and uh, Ayotoim, uh, this is a, it's totally racist that I can't pronounce these people's names on the spot, according to them. Ayotomiwa Ojo offers sharp analysis that zeroes in on some of the racist business practices of academic medical centers that Bell, meaning Derek Bell, would surely recognize as, quote, so-called neutral standards to continue exclusionary practices. Through these aggressive profits, through, through aggressive profit seeking, so there's your, sh your shot at capitalism, 
Institutions prioritize high profit margin and private privately insured patients contributing to the de facto segregate uh, de, to the de the de facto segregation that lands 50% of elderly black patients in just 5% of all hospitals. In 2008, so capitalism is apparently guilty for that. In 2008, Bronx Coalition filed a civil rights complaint against three academic medical centers in New York as a result of this medical apartheid, although no, me no, remedial, action, no remedial action resulted, and the problem persists largely unchallenged. Well, no remedial action resulted, so maybe the, the problem isn't what you said it was. The problem that you've described here, to the degree that this is true, is something that should be addressed. Healthcare reform is something that everybody believes needs to happen, or most people believe needs to happen right now as it is. And a lot of people are pretty pissed at the way that these hospitals, these corporations, and are, are running their show with their, their charge masters and whatever else. So yeah, having that reformed is probably important, but the, not under these auspices. So what do they say? Sensitive to these injustices, we have taken redress in our particular initiative to mean providing precisely what was denied for at least a decade, a preferential admission option for black and Latinx heart failure, there are no Latinx people, heart failure patients to our specialty cardiology service. So you're just going to do the patient advocacy forum. So you're just going to assume that that's what they need. Okay. What could go wrong? Hope it's not expensive. Hope you aren't going to saddle them with extra costs because you decided to preferentially stick them in a cardiology unit when maybe they don't need it. The healing arc will include a flag in our electronic... Of course, if that happens, you know, it's that things costing money is racist too. That's systemic racism, even though you're the one that did it to them. The healing arc will include a flag in our economic medical record and the admission system suggesting that providers admit black and Latinx, there are no Latinx people, heart failure patients to cardiology rather than rely on provider discretion or patient self-advocacy to determine whether they should go to cardiology or general medicine. That's going to cost them a lot of money. Great. We will be analyzing the approach closely for the first year to see how well it works in generating equitable admissions. If it does, so they're just jimmying outcomes. If it does, there will be good reason to continue the practice as a proven implementation measure to achieve equity. Meanwhile, the people that are going to be impacted by this are sitting back thinking, these motherfuckers are going to cost me a buttload of money that they wouldn't have cost me otherwise, and a lot of times I won't need it, so maybe I just won't go to their stupid hospital, which then they're going to complain about. Amazing how their game works. What else do they say? Offering preferential care, this is a paragraph I saw on Twitter, so this is intense. Offering preferential care based on race or ethnicity may elicit legal challenges from our system of colorblind law. Yeah, as it should. You just talked about Title VI. You just talked about the Civil Rights Act. You just invoked it. It may elicit legal challenges from our system of colorblind law, but given the ample current evidence that our health, judicial, and other systems already unfairly preference people who are white, no evidence given for this. They just say it. We believe, because they're critical race theorists in medicine, we believe following the ethical framework, ethical framework, give me a break, of Zach and others that our approach is, quote, or, sorry, in italics, corrective, and therefore mandated. Mandated. We encourage other institutions to proceed confidently on behalf of equity and racial justice with the backing provided by the recent White House executive orders. So we're going to use the White House. Biden's administration is going to make these executive orders. Really should see what these ones are. I don't want to lose my page. Um, at any rate, they're, they're definitely the racial equity ones. And so they're going to lean into this power to override the Civil Rights Act and maybe the 14th Amendment, the Equal Protection Clause, to give preferential care based on race or ethnicity, even though they know it's illegal. 
They're going to do this. This is their plan, preferential care. The thing that a year ago when I wrote the health equity entry for my encyclopedia, I thought, nah, that's extreme. They probably won't really do that. They're doing it. This is a program they are installing in their hospital despite knowing that it's probably illegal based on a bad reading of evidence. Remember at the very beginning of this, they said, well, we see that there's this inequity, but we don't know what it is. And they said it's probably, we asked a bunch of people and they probably said that it's patient advocacy. And rather than just taking a direct step of putting it on a checklist that we check for patient advocacy, you know, do you think that it might be, you know, nope, we're just going to give preferential admission to something that's very expensive because we're trying to build trust in the hospital after we just admitted that we're racist in our hospital. It's so upside down, I can't even, can't even deal. Closure, that's the C of their healing arc, their, their horror arc. To complete the healing arc with closure, community and patient stakeholders, stakeholders is a buzzword of that freaking freak show World Economic Forum. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a buzzword that indicates something approaching kind of a corporatist communist fusion. Uh, fascist communist fusion. So seeing that buzzword floating around here is real uncomfortable. Uh, so commu- uh, to complete the healing arc with closure, community and patient stakeholders and institutional representatives must agree that the institutional debt has been paid. They've just invented this debt, but okay. And that a new system, see, I told you they have to have a whole new system, is in place to ensure that the problem will not reemerge. You are actually making the problem worse right here. I've already outlined how you're making the problem worse, and you're going to guess what's going to happen in five years. They're going to use their own failures of justification to do more of this unless we stop these freaks. That's called the ratchet. The point at which restitution is adequate for the debt incurred will be determined in conversation with with community groups. So as long as community groups say, no, give us more... It's not repaid yet. Do you see how stupid this is? Do you see how stupid this is? We just saw reparations paid to some group, and the first thing they, the first thing they said was it's not enough. Yeah, this is going to go great. You're, go- you're setting yourself up for an extortion racket that's going to cost you untold amounts of money. It's so stupid. They're walking literally into an extortion racket. Because who do you think is going to speak on behalf of these community groups? Typical people in the community? No. The activists who appoint themselves, the grifting activists who appoint themselves the spokespeople for these communities that speak over the communities and screw them over repeatedly by getting stupid shit like this healing arc that's going to get them all admitted to cardiology when they probably didn't need it in many cases and it's going to be super expensive for them. While getting the hospital to confess to them in a bid to increase trust about how they're not racist, that they're racist. Brilliant. Okay, but ensuring the inequity does not recur will require regular data monitoring and community updates. Community updates, I'm sure. We believe this transparency is essential to establish institutional trustworthiness. No, what you're not establishing institutional trustworthiness, you're establishing institutional untrustworthiness. You're establishing that you are going to overreact. You're going to misassess what's going on. You're going to take urgent action. You're going to do illegal things. You're going to do stuff completely backwards, and you're going to set yourself up for a friggin' extortion racket. Yeah, community trustworthy, institutional trustworthiness is written all over that. Wokeness implies corruption. I bet you these guys end up getting paid out of this somehow, too. It is now common knowledge that disease and death from COVID-19, quick, invoke that thing again, have disproportionately harmed black, indigenous, and Latinx, there are no Latinx people, uh, communities in the United States. 
there are no Latinx communities, especially like 2% of, uh, of Latinos recognize the term Latinx. There are no Latinx communities. What is that? Like four queer Latin people that hang out in an apartment together? Is that a Latinx community? There are no such things. What in the fuck? Um, yeah, okay. So there has been disproportionate impact, but the, there's why? Is it because there are more comorbidities? If so, why? Is it because there's more obesity? If so, why? I'm not supposed to talk about the vitamin D thing. Why? Okay, so why? It's not just, you can't just say racism, but that's what this does. Oh, different impact. Racism. Though this trend became clear early on, no meaningful policies were enacted to mitigate it because we didn't know why it was occurring. You can't make a meaningful policy by saying something is vaguely racism and waving your arm in some direction and saying racism is a public health crisis. It's too vague. You can't do anything. Start naming actual variables that you can actually control. You can't do it. System change is not a controllable variable. Completely remake the system. That's not a controllable variable. A national testing strategy was scrapped along with a campaign to send masks. Well, um, whatever. And as the Washington Post reported in July, very neutral uh, outfit there, Trump advisors only began pushing the president to act when the virus began to impact, quote, our people. Yeah, I'm sure that's a completely legitimate framing of this from the Washington Post. I'm not even going to click on that, though. What emerges from this tragic story is more than the gross incompetence decried by the editors of the New England Journal of Medicine, New England Journal of Garbage. Uh, It is a story of incremental genocide. Yeah, that's not not what it is, okay? I'm not even going to make a joke about it. It's just that's not what it is. It is not incremental genocide. But if we read that through the Iron Law of Oak Projection, I'm kind of freaking out. You're talking about literal medical lysenkoism, putting ideology in charge of a biological science that has actual real-world impact, in this case, medicine. You're talking about prioritizing care, specifically by race and ethnicity, even though you know it's illegal. And now you're invoking incremental genocide. Iron Law of Oak Projection is freaking me out here, guys. The Iron Law of Woke Projection says when you say things like this, you're telling us what you're thinking about, what you're planning to do with your now racially and ethnically preferential care. With your medical lysenkoism, where you've put ideology ahead of science in a uh, biological science-derived application, in this case medicine. It is a story of incremental genocide, one that sits shamefully, if inconspicuously, inconspicuously within a centuries-long legacy of structural, scientific, and medical racism. So we invoke, again, centuries of all these bad things that legally ended in 1964, but we're not going to mention the fact that literally for the past, what does that work out to? 55 years, 57 years. I did my math wrong. I'm I'm a mathematician. It's okay. Relax. For the last 57 years, that's been illegal and it's been improving. But no, we're going to long legacy of structural, scientific, and medical racism There's been no scientific and medical racism outside of what you freaks are trying to do in a long time in this country. And you you want to build institutional trust and you just say this shit? God, it's frustrating. Our treatment plan follows from this diagnosis. Terrible diagnosis. This isn't even a diagnosis. This is an application of ideology to arrive at the conclusion you began with, which is that your system's racist and needs to be remade fundamentally and probably give us lots of money. Let's redistribute a bunch of wealth and redistribute a bunch of power and let's do this thing that's probably illegal uh, that you've now tied to the idea of genocide, which I am worried is a is a mark of of projection. And I say that only with a little bit of hesitation 
because Lysenko resulted, if you look at his impact in, in the Soviet context and then his impact in the Chinese context, and probably as many as 30 to 50 million deaths, as in an actual genocide, as in not to diminish the Holocaust, but an actual genocide of anywhere between six and ten times the scale, it was is Trofim Lysenko's uh, legacy here. Uh, maybe as large as that, depending on how you want to count the dead people, especially in China, where those numbers are hard to come by. Whew. Federally, pay, federally paid reparations are essential, they say, and broad adoption of healing arc can build on them directly implement, implementing restitution across a variety of institutional contexts and for a range of marginalized BIPOC communities, black indigenous people of color or black indigenous uh, and people of color. Depends on what kind of mood that they're in to leverage the, the priority here. Through a pilot initiative, we hope to provide a replicable CRT-informed framework that can move us beyond the historic cycle of documenting racial inequities while endlessly deferring the resolution. The outstanding debt from the harm caused by our institutions and owed to our BIPOC patients is long overdue. Now is time to start settling it. So that's the article. Um, we're this is medical lysenkoism. This is explicitly medical lysenkoism. This is a catastrophe in the making. Uh, I won't read the statement from Harvard that I had mentioned because it's likewise fairly long. Um, it's a huge just guilt statement. I'll just kind of touch the beginning. This is from the program in Global Surgery and Social Change, Harvard Medical School. It just recently came out. Our anti-racism statement, it kind of fits into the same vibes. Just I'm going to read this because that was an article that appeared from some people at a Harvard-affiliated hospital in Boston. This is Harvard again, uh, their global surgery, program in global surgery and social change. Why is there a program in global surgery and social change is a mystery to me. But it starts out with racism murders, racism destroys, racism dehumanizes. We live in a racist world and all play active and passive roles in perpetuating racism. This is insane right out of the gate. This is the way that these guys think, though. The system of prejudice and discrimination based on the ambiguous social construct of race backed by unequal and unjust power dynamics. Racism is inherent to every aspect of our lives. It is woven into the fabric of society and consequently its effects interface with our work as the research associates, fellows, and faculty at the program in global surgery and social change affiliated with Harvard University, I'll add. Therefore, the absence of conspicuous raci racist actions... The absence of conspicuous racist actions is not enough. We must be actively anti-racist. We absolutely unapologetically denounce our wretched racist system and its proponents without exception. And it goes on like this. This is the rhetoric that's flowing out of a program at Harvard that somehow ties global surgery and social change into one thing. We are headed for an era of medical lysenkoism if we don't speak up. I mentioned that this stuff appears frequently in the New England Journal of Medicine. It does. I even saw the article today, you know, that I mentioned earlier, saying that children should wear their vaccine stars. The clean people get to wear stars, everybody. Where's that ever happened? Uh, no stars for the dirty people, and people should be proud of their stars. The New England Journal of Medicine has been publishing a few articles of this sort in almost every issue for a while. I've been trying to warn people about it. You see them appear in The Lancet. That's another one of our major medical journals. Uh, you see them appear... You're, we, we, we talked about JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, a little bit ago. Um, it appears far less frequently... Fortunately, uh, out of the Boston Medical Group, um, the what is it called? The Boston Journal of Medicine or something like that. BMJ. 
Is that right? Boston Medical Journal. Um, still much less frequently there, but this stuff's taking over our main medical institutions. It's taking over our medical journals. It's made its way. This We're not saying it could. It is. It has taken over our medical journals. It's taking over our medical colleges. They're trying to use this to get rid of the uh, standardized test again. The medical school, the MCAT. They're saying that it's anti-racism of this sort. That I, this angry screed I just read from Harvard is supposed to be implemented in all of our all of our medical schools. We literally, I heard from people the other day that are literally going to medical schools now in other countries. They are leaving the United States to go to medical school because they don't have to face any of this garbage that's destroying medicine. We are facing an era of medical lysenkoism because now we even see it in hospitals launching a pilot program, a Harvard-affiliated hospital in a major city, Boston, launching a, a, a actual pilot program to prioritize care according to race and ethnicity, which they admit in the article talking about it, they know to be illegal. So what does that mean? It means they're going to have to reinterpret the Civil Rights Act and eventually they're going to have to reinterpret the Equal Protection Clause. They're going to have to do like they tried to do with Proposition 16 in California this past election, which luckily was put to the voters and the voters voted it down to remove anti-discrimination language from their constitution. If you didn't know that that happened, California tried to remove anti-discrimination language from its constitution. They put that on the ballot initiative. They spent, activists spent more than $10 million, $13 million, if I've got the number correct in my, in my, my memory, uh, trying to get rid of anti-discrimination language in the state constitution. They want to be able to discriminate. We see one way that they want to be able to discriminate in medicine is to prioritize care according to ethnicity, something even in my own expertise that one year ago I myself thought was at the very fringe extreme of how this might get applied, knowing that it had kind of crept a little bit here and there into nursing already. Um, but this is in everything medical. We are facing an era where medical lysenkoism could be before us, and when they say words like incremental genocide describing what they're trying to so-called correct for. We can kind of see how their pattern works with that iron law book projection. This should be extremely alarming. should be alarming even if it's not that bad, however. We should not be prioritizing care according to race. We should not be bringing that kind of decision-making process into how we decide who is to be placed in you know, medical care, to receive medical care, how they're going to be able to pay for medical care. This is the exact wrong direction. And I I'm telling you right now, this will cause unnecessary deaths. One of the things I'm sure we'll see is we're going to see we're going to see African American people whose kidneys get boxed because they decided that it would be racist to use some marker in kidney health. I don't know nephrology, so I can't talk about it, but I do know a nephrologist who's told me about this repeatedly, very alarm alarmedly. That they're getting rid of this marker. I don't know what it marks. They, they, they test this at some levels of something, and it can build up in your kidneys, and it can box your kidneys if it goes wrong. And they decided it would be racist to actually use race-based adjustments in, in calculating whatever or applying this number. So what's going to happen is just like before they realized that they needed to have this adjustment, what you're going to find is an increasing number of African-American patients. They get the wrong care that kills them, or they're going to use the other standard, and you're going to get patients of other races getting the wrong care and either substandard care or killed. These kinds of things are going to come. Medical lysenkoism is a disaster in the making. It is a catastrophe in the making. 
We're already seeing the beginnings of a brain drain from the United States in terms of its medical professionals going to other countries to get a reliable, valuable education in medicine because our medical education apparatus has been taken over by these woke fools. This is a catastrophe in the making. So I encourage you to call it for what it is. This is medical lysenkoism. Is it going to result in the deaths of tens of millions like Lysenko's terrible biology? Depends on how far it goes. Depends on how it gets applied. Depends on what happens. It's absolutely unconscionable because it's absolutely avoidable. We've made this mistake in history before if we look at Trofim Lysenko. Medical Lysenkoism is coming to the United States under the guise of health equity. It's coming to other countries throughout the West under the guise of health equity. It's being cooked up into our COVID policy. It's being cooked up into all of these racial justice initiatives that are taking over, racial equity initiatives are taking over everything. And it's already, I'm not saying it's coming, it's already here and it's going to start. It's only a matter of time until this theory translates sufficiently into practice that people start dying from it. This is not a joke. This is a very serious issue. So this is one of the grimmer episodes of the New Discourses podcast, but it's an extremely serious issue. Uh, sorry it ran so long, but I hope you take it seriously. I hope you give it some thought. And I, I hope you are legitimately concerned and willing to start calling this out, calling it out for what it is. It is a reinvention of Lysenkoism, the application that is of ideology to a biologically based science that's going to have real world impacts on real people's lives in a very negative way. Thanks for listening. I hope I didn't upset you too much. I'm fairly upset at the moment after having gone through this. <laughs>